Ladies and gentlemen, Kirk Thatcher and Darren Dockerman, the Weirded Beardos. Well, hello. Aloha. <laughs> Kirk is uh, on a beach somewhere earning 20%. In my mind. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm one of those new digital, what do they call them, uh, nomads, where I just like I have my laptop and I'm making millions of dollars in Bitcoin and I'm in a way. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I, geez, if I had a dollar for every time I've seen these guys, and here's how you could do it too. Like, yeah. yeah, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna have a job anymore. We're all just gonna be running around the planet in Thailand, living on fifty dollars a day and drinking pineapple and coconut juice, and and just selling Bitcoin on our. Computer. Which on paper sounds nice. What's that? Which on paper sounds nice. Well, I'm sure it works for somebody. It's like a buddy of mine travels the world doing. Um, uh travelogue videos with his he brings a couple gorgeous women that are friends with his it's not there's no hanky panky well and he's, that's, he's a that's the which, first mistake yeah well <laughs> no judgment um, <laughs> uh he doesn't want to get canceled uh and he's got a drone and he has you know wonderful camera equipment he's a videotech dp in la but when he's not working he's done it so much and he has youtube channels i guess that they fly him out and i'm like well that's you live the life of riley and he's like no it's a nightmare they fly you out like expect you to start the day like you arrive from the airport and they take you to the beach and you're supposed to get your girl all get the gal all dolled up or she has to you know do her own hair and makeup right. and then they put you up for two nights at their lovely resort but you're supposed to film all day so he goes yeah no it's it's nice to see the world, but they don't give you an extra two days to just just enjoy the place. It's like, nope, you're done. Bye. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that's so that's aloha, but, and it's well, the new year, so you know it is. This is for those who don't know. I'm sure there's very few of you. Uh, I'm a big tiki aficionado, and when I go to conventions, I typically wear this hat, and it started as. Somebody gave me one because I was Captain. I've been Captain Kirk since, you know, sure. again, Star Trek is, I, thankfully, I liked it. But yeah, since I was a kid, it came out. I mean, I think it came out when I was like five. So immediately, like first grade, kindergarten, like Captain Kirk. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Um, and someone gave me the, a hat, a cheap version of the, one of these, God, like 20 years ago. And I started wearing it at Comic Con so people could find me quickly <laughs> because. Right. I mean, I'm six one, so that when helps. You, but when you wanted this. that, when you wanted that to happen, yes, when I wanted people to find me, uh, and they bought the hat. So then it just became a, a, a mild affectation. But I'm also a big fan of tiki. So um, today, I, I think every episode I'm gonna wear a different hat and a different shirt, robe, something, because I have over 300. So at least you will not get any copies for the year. That's so insane. this is this is the uh, since, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah for me, <laughs> I have hats and cats. I'm trying to get bats and less fats. <laughs> well, I, I can't help you there, but uh, well, yeah. but here we I mean, are. We should have called this Two Fat Bachelors, <laughs> but T-O-O. The, anyway. the Two Fatchelors. The Two... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Fatchelors, that... No, that sounds like a thing you need to have lasered off. <laughs> it sounds like something they use to flip pancakes. A fl- <laughs> Thatcher spatulas. <laughs> yes. Let's see. What would you go into? Doctor Men's Doctor well, yeah. I don't know. Doctor Men's The Batuous Fatulers. <laughs> the Flatulent <laughs> The Flatulent oh, Fatulers. We're never, we're, never, right. we're never gonna get what through this episode. Yeah, so anyway, oh today this show This is show be, is yes. all about Kirk. That's why I wore my special outfit for you. That's why you. Um, well, I wanted to do a deep dive because there's a lot of podcasts now where I kind of give the high. You know, tell us about your life and your career, forty years in in an hour. So I kind of yeah. give the highlights. You have so the memorized do, paragraphs. That you yeah, have. yeah. I, which is fine. I mean, that's what they want, and and I think I've done enough of those. And if anyone's interested in the highlight reel, there's a ton of. We should probably put somewhere in a link somewhere. Like here's where you could actually found a website that lo- finds all your. Uh, interview podcasts it just right. it's like a link tree but it does it for you um so yeah so i want to talk about kind of what we did with you like how you got into the business and uh and, again the joe johnson thing i met joe I'll just go over that briefly but before that i had done uh films at home um with friends at high school and just on my own i was always trying to rope my neighbors into i love the background there i love, I love that <laughs> 
I love that you've got combined both of our bizarre obsessions and careers. Um, made Super 8 movies like a lot of the guys. When I went to ILM, turns out everyone there had made, they were a little old. I was the youngest there. Dave Fincher and I were the two youngest guys. And David had made movies growing up. I had made movies. And then tell, like... Ken, tell tell the year this was going on. This was 1981. Fun. Right. So we'd both been born in this early 60s. Um, and now I'm in my early 60s. Whoa. Mind blown. And we have come full circle. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so Super 8 movies or Super 8 cameras were fairly available to, uh, you know, middle class kids and families. Mm -hmm. Usually because the parents brought it to make baby movies and then Absolutely. stopped. And then stopped after either you're the second or third kid. Yeah. Or in my case, neither. My dad didn't really care. I mean, it wasn't nothing he didn't care. He just didn't care about filming. He'd like, you know, I think we have right. three movies, mainly of me. And then my brother was born. I think there's one Christmas movie and that's it. Um, so there was this camera laying around. And so I started making movies and I really started making monster movies and played with stop motion, blowing things up and. And uh, one of my best friends was Val Kilmer's younger brother, Wesley. Oh. And he was a film nut, too. That's one of the, He was an artist. We were very similar. We liked movies, like monster movies. He was a year ahead of me at school. We went to a private school. And Val was like three years ahead of or two years ahead of him. There was three brothers, Mark, Val, and Wesley. <laughs> Mark was the oldest. And there was like every two years, every three years. So it was a, anyway, Wes was my uh, one of my best friends. And we would make these movies on the weekends. We would put latex all over our faces and try and look like zombies or do the latex wrinkles to age ourselves. And sure. and so <clears throat> it was very accessible, A, because of the kind of the middle class, you know, we had parents had enough disposable income. You could buy a quart of latex and not go like, well, we're not going to eat for a week. Um, so this is privilege. This is, I don't know if it's white privilege, but it's middle class privilege. It's um, a Southern California privilege. Yes. And we knew that the film business, my next door neighbors, I think I've said this and other things there, my best friends who lived next door, uh, their dad ran a post-production facility. He was a composer at Disney, Jaime Mendoza Nava, or Jaime Mendoza. Uh, and he had done a lot of scoring for Disney. I remember like he did that darn cat and he'd done a lot of you know, Disney just needed a lot of music for the parks and all that. <laughs> and he'd done movie scores. He did the legend of Boggy Creek, um, sure. which was a very, it was actually one of those movies that was kind of a no budget thing. And then it did really well. Right. It was supposed um, to be like drive through. Yeah. And it was uh, and drive in fodder. He's not only scored it, he was the post product. So he left Disney and started his own post-production house where he do editing and sound effects and music, kind of a post house <laughs> combined with his scoring. So again, we knew this was all accessible and it was a thing you could do. So I learned kind of by osmosis by we'd go, we'd ride our bikes to Burbank and go hang out in his uh, post-production offices and <clears throat> play with the movieolas and cut together stuff just on the weekends, obviously. Um, so all that let me know, A, let me develop some uh, familiarity with the whole filmmaking process you know what right. mag was the you know what parts, yeah yeah the, the technical the tools yep. and then um <laughs> i know what you're gonna say i'm not gonna say it you're gonna Every, make everyone else is thinking it <laughs> everyone's thinking like why does this hat keep disappearing um i know what you're all thinking and the answer is yes i'm single so all you girls out there or ladies or women or people oh, identify yeah. as female canceled <laughs> What I just I said I corrected myself until it was anyway. Um, send send cards. Just DM me. It sounds dirtier than it is. Um, so then met Joe Johnson. Went to Island. <laughs> just went to Island. Worked on a little movie called Revenge of the Jedi. Return to the well. It was Revenge when I started. Yeah. Um, Revenge of the Tools. Oh, Revenge of the Tools. <laughs> I love that film. Um, so then. Worked on that, worked a little bit on Poltergeist E.T., painted E.T.'s hands, uh, went went to work with Chris Wallace, working on Gremlins, um, had a lot of fun on that, particularly on set. And this is all in like the space of like two or three years. Yeah, this all happened between 81 and like 84. Yeah. Um, one thing a lot of, I, I, so did Gremlins, which I've talked about, um, I did spend a couple days on puppeteering. Uh, I think I said between Phoebe Cates' legs with two gremlin on each hand, um, you know, attacking her when she was serving drinks at the bar. And what happened on set? Um, 
we we filmed. <laughs> that bar set stunk to high heaven because uh, it was popcorn on the floor, and we shot there for like two weeks. Um, and it just got rank and kind of mungy. It was nice. like beer was spilled or whatever was water. Anyway, um, so then Gremlins, and then uh, so there was a, a period of time that I haven't talked about very much, which was between Gremlins going back to UCLA to study um, computer animation. And I worked on a couple of things. I met David Cronenberg um, and was going to design stuff for when he was going to do Total Recall. Right. So I met with him. They flew me. uh, De Laurentiis was going to do it. So they flew me out. And I'm trying to remember. Some lawyer had heard about me from, I guess, the Star Trek no, this was before Star Trek. Yeah, I don't know how this guy got my name. I guess it was from from ILM trying to get rid of. Yeah, I, but I was back in LA anyway. So I met with the De Laurentiis people. I flew out to to uh, Toronto and had dinner at David Cronenberg's house. That's cool. Um, he was amazing and very smart, charming, kind of soft spoken. Um, and we talked about the script. Um, and I had, they wasn't sent a script. I was just kind of, we he told me the story and he was looking for vehicle designs. And I think the Quato, whatever that was. Right. So I went back home and I did some drawings and I sent them to him. I never heard, I was a little panicked because vehicle design was not my forte. So I remember Joe Johnston was here in LA. I think he was going to SC at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, he came over, uh, I was living at my parents' house and we just sat in the, dining room table and drew vehicles he kind of gave me some ideas and i'm like because i knew how to draw creatures and wrinkles and teeth and you know all that but it comes to like draw a cool car shape so he he gave me some notes and just i don't know help me out you know here here's a really conveying how fucking cool this is well it's here's what's weird joe is a pal and we were i i tend to have the i know this is going to shock everyone i tend to have the effect of turning everyone into a 13 year old boy so we get together and just act like idiots. I mean, just be goofy and silly. So yeah. to me, it was just my friend Joe, and he knew how to do vehicle design, like obviously a huge yeah. strong point. I mean, he had studied at Long Beach uh, product design or industrial yeah. design. So we just hung out. I, I was in, I think I'm in three of his uh, student films at SC. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so I did that and then sent it off to Cronenberg uh, or De Laurentiis and then didn't hear back. He, he dropped was dropped out of the project or left the project. Right. So it never went anywhere. But because of that, uh, they contacted me, Martha, um, who was Dino's assistant and a producer on things, um, contacted me about uh, doing, working on this movie Cat's Eye, designing this creature for it. Because hmm. I knew I, I, I kind of said, you know, my strength is more creature stuff. So I met with Louis Teague, who was the director. He was a lovely guy. We got along really well. And then did a bunch of cre- creature designs um, for this little goblin thing. And then we had this meeting. I've talked about this in a couple interviews, but had a meeting with Dino and Carlo Rimbaldi, who was going to build it, <clears throat> and Louis and I and Martha. So Dino and Carlo just, I, I showed my drawings. And I'm like, okay. And Louis was like, well, I like this. And I think maybe this this kind of head, but with this body. And then Carlo and Dino basically had a conversation entirely mm-hmm. Italian where essentially, and Martha was sort of translating, uh, they just, Carlo said, no, I cannot make these. I'm going to make this. <laughs> and Dino's like, well, uh, Carlo's going to make it. So we'll go with that. And so Lewis was kind of a little felt like he'd been steamrolled. Uh, and Which it was like, had. yes, of course. Uh, Carlo said some crazy thing. Like he wanted to have water bags. It was very toad-like. I mean, it was a cool design. I, I don't think it was terrible. A big broad face, kind of a, very toad-like with little teeth and he wore a jester costume for some reason i don't know if that was in the it was based on stephen king short stories mm-hmm. so uh <clears throat> uh anyway they decided to that was going to be i guess he did i did do a couple drawings with that jester hat uh anyway carl was going to build it oh he was going to have water bags on it so he'd bounce and look squishy and i'm like that's insane like you're gonna because i was telling about i told lewis well the rancor suit was as larger than the person inside of its suit so it doesn't look like a guy in a suit and i said there was no water bags you could barely walk around in that thing and you know dean uh, carl is going to put big bags of saline or water right, on the right. suit i was not gonna be able to do jack squat unless you wire it anyway 
Uh, but Lewis felt bad that we, he'd been steamrolled and I'd been sort of like, yeah, cut out. So he goes, well, you're, you're an artist. Yeah. I see storyboard. Yeah. I've done storyboard. I did some storyboards on gremlins. I, I storyboarded the last bit where stripe gets melted, which was great. Cause I did it like old EC comics and Joe loved it. I, I never met with him about that, but Chris said, Joe really liked the fact that it looked like, you know, ghastly or um, Jack Davis yeah. kind of style. With I did the brush brush pens, which were all the rage at ILM at that time in the art department. Those brush pens you could get, sure. yeah, yeah. So you could do like that Bernie writes and sort of uh, illustrative, illustrative, yeah. thick, illustrative style. Yeah, pen. yeah. It looked very EC Comics. So uh, anyway, I ended up going to North Carolina for three months and storyboarding the entire picture. Uh, everything except, you know, dialogue scenes. I mean, Lewis... At, there was, at, Wilmi at Wilmington. In Wilmington, yeah. And De Laurentiis had just finished building, like, the second soundstage. Yeah. And that was crazy. So there was an entire crew of Italian guys that Dino had brought over, and they were great. I mean, we would, hung, we would hang out and go to whatever sad little nightclub was there trying to meet girls. We're all, like, in our 20s. Um, and yeah. they were classic, like, an SNL sketch of Italian guys. Like, hey, come on! A big huggy. Like, I, I, I love the them bar. to death. The bar attached to the Holiday Inn in Wilmington. Yes, that was it. Adams Adams Bar was yep. listed somewhere as the number one spot in the country to catch a venereal disease. <laughs> well, I never got so lucky. I never got lucky at all. But uh, I said these guys were great, but I would never introduce them to my sister. Um, uh, and I didn't have a sister. Well, I had a sister. I just didn't know at that time. There's a whole other story about me being adopted and meeting my bio fam. Anyway, that's another episode. Uh, so I would hang out with these guys. We'd go dancing and I was a, you know, berserker on the dance floor. And, and so it was just a <laughs> bunch of guys watching, you know, there's like two girls there. Anyway, we had a, bl I had a blast. I storyboard, there was an, a room, probably a 30 by 20 room at, at the end of my stint had, uh, drawings from about wainscoting high from about three feet high up to about seven feet about as high as i could pin and a lot of it was the scene where the guy's walking around the perimeter of the building that was one of the uh, one of the segments mm -hmm. it's an anthology movie and so all the low angles and high angles which perspective again not my forte so i had to crash course learn a you know, perspective um most of it was one point because you're either looking up or down there were right. a few shots where i was like nah. um but lewis was great and it really helped him the production designer, a guy named Jeff, who was a sweetheart, actually named, they named the family, and I guess Lewis was a part of this, the, when you see the, the, the segment that had the little goblin in it, uh, Drew Barrymore was the little girl who was being, and her cat was, they thought the cat was trying to kill her and turned out the cat was trying to save her from this goblin. Right. Um, uh, they named the family the Thatchers, like there's a shot of the mailbox, and that was their little nod. But the thing that was cool for me is I changed the, the script. The script had him just getting stomped or something. And I said, no, no, you got to have, this guy's been a little bastard the whole movie or uh, this whole segment. You got to have a great death. So I came up with the whole thing. With, so people can enjoy it. Yes, exactly. So it came with the thing with the balloon and the, the, um, the, the, uh, oscillating fan and him getting sucked into that and going right as the parents break down the door and they get goblin guts all over him. So anyway, uh, Lewis loved it and I storyboarded it and that's what they shot. So that was the first time I, I had some influence because if you're close to the director, like you, there, yeah. look, any idea is a good idea. And I learned from him and then from Leonard Nimoy, Hey, you know, anyone's good idea makes the show look good makes the director look good. So, uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, so I did that movie, went back to LA, went back to UCLA to learn to study animation. And that's when I met Leonard Nimoy and worked on Star Trek four and, and two kind of deep cuts that people don't know besides the punk and all that was, and I've told that story a hundred times, but I wrote, they needed a section in the beginning of the movie where right. Spock is being, it's computer yeah. questions. And so Harv Bennett's like, well, you, you're in science and all that. Um, Go write up a bunch of like philosophy, archaeology, you know, science, you know, chemistry, physics, engineering. So I had this, I still have it, a science encyclopedia is like this big and it kind of covers general knowledge of literally all those things. Um, and so I just flipped through it and I, you know, what is the, what is the uh, molecular, I've, 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 uh, Steve Lee, a sound guy who worked on that on Star Trek, the found the original molecular recorded. structure of gadolinium. Yes, what does it make? Yes, exactly. And who said logic is the cement of our civilization from which we send from chaos using reason as our guide? So I got to write all those. And um, I put my name in there as a uh, 
and and uh, also a Star Wars Easter egg. T Planet Hoth, matron of Vulcan philosophy. That's just Planet Hoth with the T shifted over. Just God. T Planet Hoth. Um, well, that was an Easter egg that I, I think I finally outed on Twitter. And some people are like, "Oh yeah, I do that." <laughs> no, you yeah, didn't. no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah. jerks. Um, anyway. So that was fun. And then the other deep cut was that's my voice. So right. Leonard said, Hey, we need to record. I need something to react to. Can you just record it since you wrote it? And you know, and I'm like, sure. So I just said, you know, who said logic is this man of our civilization kind of dead in the flat Star Trek, you know, yeah. like Major Roddenberry's uh, copying that kind of flat affect. Right. And they sped it up a little bit and, and harmonized it and used it on set. And then when it came around to finishing the movie and post, Leonard's like, oh, just use that. Yeah. <laughs> that. That works fine. So I, Ralph Winter told me afterwards, he said, we, we're not going to give you credit. It's funny because I got the SAG card, not from the punk cameo, but for the song. Right. So I could have gotten credit as the, the voice, uh, but I did not. The other thing I wrote or I tweaked was, well, a couple of things, uh, my face passing out and turning off the boombox because originally it said spock turns it off but i'm like he's not gonna know how to turn it off what if i just face hits the button they're like great love it and then oh talking to the computer because i just right. got a macintosh and uh so they said scott i think the script says scotty sits down and starts typing i said wouldn't yeah. he talk to the computer first because that's what they do and they're not aware that you can't talk to your computer and they're like oh yeah that's a good idea uh, so good idea so he says, and i said yeah what if he picks up the mouse he goes use the mouse and he thinks it's a microphone so that was my gag. So adding little, little bits like that just pleased me no end, and, and it's a fun little moment. Anyway, so I did Star Trek Four, which talked about ad nauseum on other things, and then met Jim Henson. So I started with Jim because, and I think I've told this, I know I've told it, uh, Jim Frawley, who directed the first Muppet movie, his wife was a headhunter for Omnibus Able, which was a big effects company back in the 80s. Right. And we had talked to them about maybe doing some post-effects work on Trek. It didn't work out. But she and I had become friends. And I was showing her this some ideas I had for kind of creature TV shows and stuff. She goes, you know, I'd love this, Jim Henson. So she set it up. I met with Jim. We got along great. And uh, he was at the Bel Air Hotel. We ended up sitting on the... We had lunch. And then we ended up going back to his bungalow with he and his assistant, Marianne. And I ended up sitting on the floor in my big portfolio case, and I brought, I think, a couple of these sculpts I'd done of these these alien, uh, genetically engineered animals, actually, that were running a space program. And uh, and he just said, great. And then, like, two weeks later, he calls, and uh, my mom answered the phone, and she thought it was, like, you know, you and I do impressions, all my friends do impressions. Yeah. So she thought someone was doing a Kermit impression. She's <laughs> oh. like, Oh, is, uh, Kirk All right, Kirk can I there? speak to Kirk, yeah. please? Yeah, and she's like, oh, mask is calling? Like, it's Jim Henson. Okay, Jim Henson. You know? <laughs> so she felt terrible when she found out that it was actually Jim Henson. Um, so I started working on a show. Uh, it was a kid show. Jim, you know, Jim always wanted to do shows that would teach. He wanted to do a show. This show was not like Fraggle Rock, which was going to end all war. This was going to teach kids about kind of the the abundance of cultures and flora and fauna and also cultures on earth and the idea was it was aliens in this weird kind of blimp shaped uh spaceship that were traveling around reporting back to their planet it's an idea that's been done at that point i don't know if it had been but there were these three aliens and their job was to report back you know should we invade earth should we not like what's right. going on here and so it was fun so i started doing uh pencil drawings and finished like marker uh, marker and um, colored pencil uh, illustrations for this show, uh, working with Michael Frith, who's, I mean, I was like, why are you hiring me? This guy is amazing. I mean, he's up there with like Walt Kelly as, yeah. as just an illustrator, let alone a concept guy. He was the head of the art department at, at Henson, but, and he's very professorial. He kind of has, he has one of those glasses. He looks over his nose at you and he white beard and gray hair. A really funny, incredibly smart guy. It was very intimidating. Yeah. But Jim Jim was the guy who, you know, hired me. So that was great. Um, so worked on that and then went on to do the Jim Henson Hour. And on that, Jim, what was great about Jim was he'd hire artists as concept people before he hired writers. Right. Because he's a visual thinker. And that's one of the reasons he and I got along really well. So I was kind of a gag idea guy, but using art instead of like, 
two caterpillars walking to a bar. Yeah. Uh, so I draw it. And then he had another guy in England and he and I become really good friends, John Stevenson, who had done the same thing with him over in the UK. So started working with Jim, went to uh, New York, moved to New York and then to London, um, Ontario, uh, sorry, Toronto, Canada, and uh, did the Jim Henson hour. And I got my first taste of directing second unit on a, a film. So the idea with the show was half an hour of Muppet stuff and then half an hour, uh, a short film, whether it was uh, one of the storytellers right. from England or a couple things that Jerry Jewell had written called one was called Lighthouse Island. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> there's a, a couple great stories from Lighthouse Island. Again, these are not, I think maybe I've told them once. Uh so I got to do second unit. When the, the idea was it was this odd little island where weird stuff would happen. And, and so I was shooting just inserts of like creatures peeking around corners. And, and uh, one of the things I was, uh, because of my uh, creature shop and creature background, I was given like, okay, so this has these two mermaids in it. These two people, uh, the, the kind of romantic interest, he guy falls in love with a woman. It turns out she's a mermaid in the end he jumps in the water and they swim off as mermaids. That was the, the great ending. Well, the creature shop had built uh, a mermaid tail for this gal. And <laughs> for the shot, they didn't want to build a, ta a tail for the guy. I don't know if he couldn't swim or it was just like too much money. So they, they said, we're going to build two models of mermaids for like a wide shot. But they were about two feet long they were about this big there we go yeah maybe 24 inches maybe 30 inches and the thing was we were shooting them in the atlantic ocean <laughs> so there was no way with perspective i mean they, they look like we're swimming through yeah. a tsunami we uh we shot with the the stunt gal in peggy's cove again this is the atlantic in november yeah water was chilly yes so that was one thing we tried shooting. We found a little bay that like the water was pretty calm. So the waves would scale, but it just, it didn't really work. And they were just radio control. They just kind of go flap, flap, flap. And the idea is you'd see them in the distance. It didn't work at all. The second thing the creature shop did was there was supposed to be this, this witch kind of turns into different creatures. And one is this giant bird and we see the feet come down. So they gave us a pair of like giant talons and claws yeah. that were on a rig, but this was all made in England and they just shipped it with nobody coming over to work with us and no instruction manual nothing just yeah well i mean the legs were just kind of like this so that was easy there was the sea creature and it was supposed to be the the description was a three-foot mouth like you know basically a giant gator mouth or something yeah. comes up out of the water with tons of teeth and attacks the 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 guy and the girl trying to escape the island i guess in this little dinghy so we were going to shoot this out in the in the actual ocean in uh, in a bay, <laughs> and they were going to send this. It was latex foam, latex and fiberglass creature. This mouth that was supposed to be terrifying. Well, what they sent was a three foot long creature. <laughs> it was basically a tadpole with a, a mouth was about the size of two hands, and the body was just essentially a gray green tadpole, no eyes or anything, just like. Rah, rah, rah. And you it can't was, get it anywhere near water because that was, would throw off the scale completely. Oh, but yeah, yeah, it didn't work at all. And yeah. and they gave it with an aluminum pole and just a trigger. And so it, it showed up and I unboxed it. And I'm like, oh wait, what? And it was like too late. And I said, and it's it's foam latex. So as soon as it gets wet, right, it's just gonna. No, no, don't worry about it. It's gonna be fine. Well, we'll work around it. So and talking to Jim, all the, director, the water, and then start sagging. Dude, so guess who got who? I was the only person there because there was creature shop guys didn't come over. Right. So we end up we're, the, the idea is to shoot it at night in this another bay that was somewhat protected, and we we're going to just be off a dock, but the boat would be there, and we're shooting over it, so you you could be out. And it was nighttime, and the waves. So a storm is moving in. So I'm in a half inch or three quarter inch wetsuit, so I don't die of hypothermia, and I'm in about five and a half feet of water when when the when the waves are going out, when the waves are coming in, it's about seven feet of water. Mm. And I'm off the side of this thing and I've got a weight belt. So I don't float because yeah. in a three quarter inch suit, you're basically like a, a, um, you're a buoy foam rubber. Yeah. You're a foam rubber mattress. Um, so I've got a weight belt 
I'm standing in the water and this thing gets waterlogged in, in a matter of moments. And <laughs> so, and there's a storm moving in. So there's a bit of a storm surge. So the boat is going like this and it's not just a bob, it's, it's rising up and down maybe two feet. So I'm holding this thing originally by the pole. So I'm not in the shot. I mean, it just, it was laughable, but we're trying to get what we can get. So the, we had a Greek cameraman, Nikos, who was a lovely guy. And so we'd line up the shot, and then of course a wave would come in. You go, no, 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 you you got to you got to pick it up. And then I'm under, I'm inundated, I'm underwater for yeah. seconds, and then you know, which is fine. I'm comfortable holding my breath. I used to be able to hold my breath for two minutes, but within about three to five minutes, the thing is so waterlogged that the aluminum pole just break, basically bends. So now I'm holding it underneath. Trying to keep my head out of the shot, so trying to be lower. The boat is bumping into my head and the creature. And every time we line up the shot, these look okay, put okay, action. And then the wave comes in, boom, and I, you see my head. So we tried this for about forty minutes until we realized this was absurd. And the the surf's getting rougher. The storm. This is November. The water's maybe thirty eight degrees. Mm -hmm. I start okay. So there was a key grip on this. It was kind of an alpha male, you know, shaved head sort of guy. Not like, it was like a light joke. Yeah, exactly. We were polar opposites. Um, you know, like ex-military kind of guy. And he just didn't like my joking around. He's just one of those guys like didn't like me from the moment I saw him. And I knew things were bad when he asked me, are you okay? Because I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, your face is blue. Your lips are actually purple. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so they finally... I partially out of concern for my health, but partially just because there's no way to get this shot. I went and they said, you know, get out. I went and took a hot shower and then the shaking started. It was so weird. I was fine. I wasn't shaking. I was going to Iron Man through it. I got in my little trailer and turned on the hot, you know, trailer water is like yeah. showering under a, a toothpick or a water pick. Um, <laughs> the mildly hot water hits me and suddenly I'm like, <laughs> and I, I was a little convulsing you were shivering. Anyway, yeah. Yes. Luckily, I I survived. Shocking ending. Um, that was a nightmare. Um, and the, the <laughs> we ended up shooting in a swimming pool. We blacked out the bottom of the pool, and it's still. I think we ended up just rocking the boat and doing it with sound effects. There was no that that creature was shot. I mean, after, I mean, after forty five minutes, it pretty much just started slipping off the fiberglass. Sure. So the creature shop kind of screwed us there, and I was that was my first real. Uh, interaction with them anyway now, let, let me stop you there because yeah. uh, there you know there are stories about how the creature shop in england and the shop in new york were uh basically sibling rivalry and well, they didn't yes. like each other well they didn't like each other in not like they hated each other but the thing was one was a puppet shop with much more i would say one was very feminine Right. And I don't mean it's just women. There were men no, no, and women. Yeah. It was sewing and crafts. It was much more from a crafting perspective. And that was New York. That was New York because it was Muppets. It was yeah. sewing and gluing. And London, if you typify, <laughs> was much more of a, all right. It was, it was mostly guys from uh, London, right. I would say. I, I don't know if East Enders is the right term, but the, you know, blue collar guys. Right. Okay. We're gonna, here's what we're going to do. Right. Yeah. And, and it was all about sculpting and molding and casting. Yeah. And armatures. Yes. And mechanics. Yeah. The me mechanical guys were mechies. Um, and it was a much more brutal, like the, the mechanical guy was a very thin, uh, lovely guy whose nickname was Flimsy. <laughs> not only because he was thin, but the gag was the stuff he made was not robust. Right. So it was this more supportive, again, feminine energy of New York. We're like, we're crafting. We're all lovey-dovey. And London was like, all right, mate, if you can't do your job, fuck off. We'll get right. someone who can. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crap, isn't it? And, and English film crews are great. I love them, but much more cynical. Of course. Not that there wasn't cynicism. There was a more of a... <laughs> Again, I'm going to use language that's not so appropriate, but I would say New York could be bitchy and London were assholes. <laughs> Mm. On their worst days. I mean, the, the worst aspects of them. Right. And then New York was loving and supportive. And in London, it would be more like, that's amazing. You, you know, if you did a good job. So it's much more of a military vibe versus a crafty home thing. So right. it's not like they hate each other. It's just very, very different 
uh, zeitgeists. Uh, right. Yeah. But I got along with everybody um, because I appreciated what everyone did. Uh, but anyway, that was my introduction to them. And they were like, yeah, no, it, there's a, a word that they use in England, a chancer. Oh, he's a bit of a chancer. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it'll sort out. And they just kind of did that with Lighthouse Island. So my first introduction to them was like, wow, they totally screwed us. And they didn't care. Like, all right, well, sorry. Right. Sorry, uh, we got, it's, it's you know, we've got other things to do, bye. Because right. it wasn't a big job for them. It was very in-house. So at the same time they were doing or finishing up the first season of Storyteller, which was amazing. Right. So I thought, well, obviously, I mean, they were doing, you know, they'd done Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And the work they do was fantastic. Uh, a very small movie they did for with Dennis Potter was... Um, Dream Child, which Dream again, Child, absolutely, yeah, great stuff. So I was disappointed and felt a little, uh, you know, run over. And, and Jim was disappointed too. Obviously, he's like, well, you know, sometimes it's a, <laughs> sometimes they're kind of doing their own thing. So uh, jump forward a year and a half. Oh, this was a up time. So after I came back from a Jim Henson hour, so it was eighty nine. I had two jobs that I rarely talk about. One was uh, RoboCop 2, working for Phil Tippett. Mm -hmm. So I moved up, and I stayed at Phil's house. I just stayed in the extra guest bedroom and uh, <laughs> and uh, worked on designing Kane, which was the bad robot in that yep. one. Uh, his brain case that was pulled out and smashed at the end of the movie, and the the tube where they stored, or where his brain and eyeballs and spinal cord were kept alive uh so i got to design those and and build half of them i broke my hand uh about halfway into the job we were shooting tests for this brain pan thing that had to smash and and look like metal and plastic and liquid and brain material so we were i designed it which wasn't so hard and then built it and then was casting it in wax and trying to figure out what to make this clear dome out of so you could see it i mean if it was um not transparent you wouldn't it could be anything right but you know we wanted to see the brain it was a very ec science fiction kind yeah. of you know and verhoven loved that stuff and kind of set the style very much like a 50s kind of sci-fi thing yeah even though it was kirshner who directed it right yeah but they the 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 the, the design sense was that kind of thing and phil loved that so i designed the thing the brains in there with this bubbling or the water and then it weighed a good 10 or 12 pounds because of all the liquid and the, the alginate and gelatin brain in there with blood bags. And so we were doing slow-mo tests to see what it looks like smashing it. And it fell out of my hand, and my hand's moving at the speed with the momentum of a 12-pound rock in it. And my hand hit, and I broke my two fingers. Oof. Yeah. Um, so, and I think it was on my left hand, which was my good hand, if I have a good hand, my better hand. Um so I was out and Phil was pissed, but I, I just couldn't work. I couldn't make anything with my you know right hand. So I came back to L.A. Are you left-handed when you write and draw? Yeah. That's interesting because so much. I knew that. I knew you were left-handed, yeah. I didn't realize um, you were. Yeah, Never, the only people mind. in their right minds. That's right. Correct. Um, and so came back to L.A., started working with Jim Freelance on Dinosaurs. Right. But that was just, I was back in LA, I'd draw, you know, I'd send some facts, some stuff, and then fly out. I think I flew out once, had a meeting, came back. And at that point, the Henson Company was being purchased or considered being purchased by Disney. Right. And they were designing these theme park rides. So I got a job at Imagineering. What was funny was it had nothing to do with the Muppets. It was all because of um, my background with creature stuff. I was on uh, Tomorrowland. They were redoing the Carousel of Progress. And the idea was it was a crashed space carnival. Huh. So we're going to sit in the audience and watch what these aliens have created. And it, in the early days, Michael Jackson was going to uh, be the big weenie at the fifth, you know, the fifth pie, slice of the pie was going to be a Michael Jackson ro a robot figure. Right. And not really changed from Michael Jackson, which I thought was a weird idea. Danny Elfman was going to write the music. Yeah. The thing I worked on, there were two scenes. One was the big, right before that, kind of the second to the last big thing, was a big alien uh, a kind of orchestra. And the gag was, there was all these weird creatures. So I was designing these weird creatures. I brought, uh, I, I recommended Tony McVeigh. So he came down. He wow. lived at my house. 
uh, just crashed in the other room. And we worked on this thing for about a good six, seven months. And uh, it was, they were, they were going to redo all of Tomorrowland. Anyway, it didn't get, it didn't get picked up, but I did some consulting on the Muppet movie ride, which was really cool. And, right. met, and met some amazing artists there, still friends like um, Mo Vignali, Marcelo Vignali, Ben Tripp. Uh, Don Carson, amazing, amazing artists and and concept guys. I mean, Imagineering is the other place where you were respected if you had a visual sense and you communicated visually and you were an idea guy as opposed right. to the writer. And they had writers, but at Imagineering it was a little more, it was less, it was the opposite of television where you bring in the writers, then bring in the artists. This was now, when you, when you say the Muppet movie ride, that's actually Muppet Vision 3D. Right? No, no, no. Oh, was it what? Tell me what this was. There was going to be a ride where you go through and see the Muppets studios and they were making... Was this going to uh, be at MGM? Yes, I okay. believe so. Yeah. But the idea was you were going to see like five or six vignettes of the Muppets making movies. And there was a, a Pigs in Space where it's hanging from ropes. And you've got like Miss Piggy on, on wires doing... Wow. So yeah, there's some art. I actually have a couple pieces. Um, Marcelo Vignali, that's where I met him. And I think maybe Ben Tripp or Don Carson. They were all working on that. And it was great. It was going to be amazing. It was sort of... Uh, yeah, a ride through Muppet Studios. And it wasn't the 3D movie. So on that, the only thing I worked on on that was I designed this Waldo character for Jim Henson Hour, which is a, a th computer puppet. Right. Or a, a computer character, real-time performed by a puppet. So they used him in the 3D movie because CG does 3D really well. So I designed some props and gags for that. And uh, so I was doing that and working on uh, consulting on the Muppet movie ride. And this um, Carousel Progress redo. And that's when I did my second round of designs for Jim. And I went to New York. And we had a meeting. And on a Friday, remember Friday lunch meeting. And we hung out afterwards to go over the drawings. And then just talk about life. And he had like a little bit of a... I mean, he sounded like this. Oh, yeah. He sniffed maybe three times. And I said, oh, you got the cold? He's like, no, I just got the sniffles. You know, it's not anything bad. And and I said, okay, cool. So I hung out in New York that weekend to see friends because I'd only, I'd lived there a year. Yeah, just two years, two years <laughs> earlier. No, a year earlier. Um, so I saw friends, went to my favorite haunts and flew home on Monday and Tuesday morning. I think it was Tuesday morning. I knew it was in the morning. It was either Tuesday or Wednesday morning. I hadn't been home more than 24 hours. I got the call. Kevin Clash said jim died last night i'm like how was that was you know i thought he was in a car wreck like yeah yeah he was 52 53 yeah. um anyway people know that story so that was horrifying but and we you know went to new york and stayed uh it's weird like my life sounds so i wouldn't say glamorous but i stayed in henry kissinger's son's house or condo or apartment uh he was dating jim henson's assistant and he and I become pals. We bonded over a cereal called Oat Bake, and we still <laughs> sign off or when we're texting each other, start with Oat Bake or end with Oat Bake. I've never um, heard that sentence before. Yeah. We bonded over a cereal called Oat Bake. We bonded over a cereal called Oat Bake. It's a good song cue. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm staying there, going to Jim, you know, hanging out with everybody, going to his funeral, and get back to LA. And uh, Disney was still buying the company at that point and said, hey, we're interested in this dinosaurs thing. So Alex and I went and pitched it to Bob Young and Michael Jacobs, mm -hmm. who had just done My Two Dads, I think. Charles in Charge, something like that. My Two Dads? I don't know. It was My Two Dads. Charles yeah. in Charge of My Two Dads. Charles Charge. No, it was My Two Dads they had wor were working on, I guess. So Michael had a deal with ABC. So we pitched it to him and I showed him some drawings and they go, this is fun. Let's work on it. So we all kind of brainstormed it. I went off and did finished artwork for the main characters. So it was mom, dad, Robbie, Charlene, the baby and grandma. Right. And they were full color marker and pencil sketch things. And we pitched it and they bought now, it. Were they called the Sinclairs because of the uh, oil yeah, company? Of course. Okay, good. And his boss is BP Richfield. Right. right. Yeah. There was a lot of uh, kind of dinosaur. I mean, those were the big oil company, uh, Sinclair and Richfield, um, British Petroleum. That, that no one that no one even knows about anymore. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there are some Sinclair 
uh, gas stations here in LA with the the old with the, uh, the brontosaurus. brontosaurus or apatosaurus. Right, whatever it is. If, if, you, if you're friends with an eight year old, they say, ah, oh, it's an apatosaurus. Brontosaurus. Yeah. yeah. All right, fine. Potato, potato, yam. Yeah. Um. Anyway, or sweet potato yam would be the better metaphor. Uh. So the funny thing is, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but uh, I did some work for a student film at SC that was called Dinosaur Dreams. Uh, and it was uh, for a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Tom Silla, who was directing, who was a friend of Ben Burtz in Moran. I know the name Tom Silla. Uh, Tom is one of the voices in the uh, uh, in the Star Wars uh, X-Wing uh, uh, fighter uh, thing, oh, yeah, one thing. Of all pilots to your stations. Uh, wow. That's Tom. Um, but Tom is who Ben Burt put me in touch with when I contacted Ben saying I was going to USC. Right. He says, we'll oh. talk to this guy. So, but he did it. He did a student film called Dinosaur Dreams. And I did a logo for him. That was dinosaur in the big rock letters oh. and dreams. And so when I saw the ads for dinosaurs, I said, they ripped off my logo. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had the egg for the O and everything. I, oh, really? Yes, sir. I don't. Well, I never saw your logo. I no, didn't no, just I, the logo for the show. I'm not saying you did. I'm just no. saying, you know, the law of parallel development is yeah. in full well, force. Yeah. I remember Iroh was writing a script called The Boy Who Could Fly, and a movie came out yeah. six months later. Same title, different story. Mine was literally about a kid who wakes up one morning bouncing on the ceiling, and they don't know why. Um, that one, I don't even know if I ever saw. I don't, I don't think I ever saw, it, but I don't think it was about a kid who wakes up and can fly. It might have been about him flying at some and point. Then he does a big fart and comes back down to that. Exactly. <laughs> well, you you read the script. See? The conflict. I, I wrote it. Parallel. <laughs> no! Um. Yeah, Howard Stern then made it as Fart Man. Uh, That's right. So, so anyway, so you you, you pitched pitch so the show. Pitch the show. They buy it. We remember walking out. With Martin Baker as the main producer of the Muppets, we go, oh my God, what if they say yes? Because this is a huge job. They had done the, the Creature Shop had done the Ninja first Ninja Turtle movie, and maybe the second one. I'd have to look at a timeline. So they'd kind of gotten this technology down, at least a radio controlled, right. cable, that, that weren't just cable controlled heads and, you know, actual expression. Were, yeah, servo controlled, remote controlled, yeah, and, wireless yes. things. And that's how we helped sell the idea. We sh The Creature Shop had a a demo or a sizzle reel, like three minutes of like all these creatures and the Ninja Turtles talking. And so we sold it. And I went to London for three months to supervise the build. And <laughs> they had not done anything of that scale. I mean, there was like 10 characters. Yeah. And, you know, Earl is in an 80 pound suit that made, you know, uh, Bill Beretta, who, who uh, auditioned for it. Oh, here's a deep cut. One of the people who auditioned to be one of the suit performers was um, uh, the gal who played Phoebe on Friends, Lisa Kudrow. Oh, she there's she, you know, an actress in L.A. Yeah. And this was a gig and it was a sitcom. And, and even Conan O'Brien's girlfriend at the time. She was. Yep. Wow. Well, he wasn't helping her because she yep. auditioned to be a suit performer. No, because he was nothing at that point. Oh, he, he wasn't I guess even he'd working on Yeah. He'd been a writer in SNL. Uh yeah, so I thought that we we didn't even realize it until like a year later when we when friends came out and we're looking at the cast and somebody goes, she auditioned and we looked at the tapes and lo and behold, That's there funny. she was. Um, so went to London, you know, it was a huge undertaking. Uh, one of the things that was funny was uh, the original drawing, if you somewhere on the web, you can see it of Earl. He had a much more... Uh, protruding jaw because he's supposed to be a bully blowhard that's you know right. how we design it. so i think the original drawing is wearing a hawaiian shirt he's got a cigar and a beer he's kind of based on my brother <laughs> <laughs> um who's not a blowhard but he's a bit of a alpha male know-it-all type and, you know the guy who's always got a beard either a cigar or something so i was like you know he's that guy who leads with his chin and so michael saw the sculpt he might have did he fly i don't remember if he flew out to london or not but he saw the sculpt and he's got this big John, he's like, no, 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 no. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's, you know, he, he, he looks mean. He looks mean. And we're like, well, you know, he's not, he's in a neutral expression. So he's just kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. because no, no, it looks too mean. You got to, yeah, take that jaw down. Or, you know, what would you do? I said, well, you'd shave the jaw down and it'll look a little more like, you know, uh, Newman from uh, Seinfeld. Right. 
And he's like, yeah, 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 he just looks too mean. So we did it. And after the first season, Michael's like, why'd you do it? Why'd you listen to me? Now he just looks like a big fat idiot. We're like, well, <laughs> and Michael, I mean, laughing as he said it, but why'd you listen to me? Why don't you just, so they even talked about re-sculpting the face so we could have him be a more, but I don't know. The fact that he was kind of a big dope worked, I think. Yeah. I mean, what an original idea. The dad on the sitcom is an idiot. I mean, but you know, the Simpsons, in fact, we were compared to the Simpsons. They were like, Oh, uh, in fact, Simpsons did a parody of us where uh, Bart and I think Maggie are watching a show. Well, and, and Homer, and it's it's basically dinosaurs version of the Simpsons. He's like, look, it's just like us, except they're dinosaurs. And so then we, I don't know if we did this. I can't remember now. We talked about Tim Doyle wrote, uh, and maybe it was just an audio thing, but they're watching TV and uh, it's a show called The Simpsons. <laughs> Nice, yes, stones yes. meet the but I remember uh, the, one of our first reviews, I think it was in the LA Weekly, was the, the, the title of the review was Yabba Dabba Duh. <laughs> it's like dinosaurs is a, a pale, you know, ripoff of The Simpsons. With, with incidentally, Tim Doyle messaged me and said, uh, if uh, his name isn't mentioned more on the uh, on the podcast, he's going to be angry. Well, um, there you go, Tim Doyle, because I went to school with Tim, I went to you school did? Okay. at the same time with Tim, so I knew right. him from well, that. Tim and Tim was a junior writer. It was part of the ABC writers program. So yep. we built these things. And meanwhile, Bob and, and Michael are casting the, not only the voices, but also the writing room. Yep. So I come back and to Michael Jacobs credit, and I'll always thank him for this. He said, you know what? You should be a writer on the show. Cause you have tons of ideas, not just, you know, you can't just draw and you have visual stuff, but you've got really good ideas. So I'm like, okay, I would love that. Cause I'd been writing on my own. So right. I got my writer's guild card and I started as a co-producer, I think co-producer, which is not bad for your first yeah. you know, staff writer. Well, which is the, which is the title they give you instead of money. Yes. Well, trust me, the money I was making is the best money I'd ever made. Well, yes, uh, but in the scheme yeah, because I've been, you well, know as, now. as you know, being an artist designer is crap pay. Absolutely. And you can design, I've designed all the characters, get no money from it. Nothing. Um, if I'd written them, I'd be rich. I wouldn't exactly. have to do things like this. I'd just be sitting in Hawaii. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Have to do things like what? <laughs> <laughs> like wear a funny hat and go you to convention. You don't have it's to fun. do this at all, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> I love hanging out with you, even if it's virtually. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so suddenly I'm making good money and I'm writing scripts. And Tim, who was part of the writing program, this, and he'd just come out of SC. I think mm -hmm. he'd done a student film there. <laughs> so he and I hit it off because you know he's a lovely guy and then we had a similar sense of humor and uh, so my first script I wrote with him it was called When Go Food Goes Bad and the idea was that their refrigerator is more like a terrarium because they like eating live animals and they were little puppet creatures so my joke was well, well the puppet creatures in the fridge kind of revolt literally the food goes bad and uh, there was a um, character in there I said he's kind of a cat creature that i designed and the idea was his 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 arm had already been chewed off so he had a fork <laughs> and <laughs> his eye and he was the leader he was uh general chow um, and tim tim when we were pitching the idea did the voice and then so he ended up doing the voice of the character well and it's funny because the guy who did the voice the puppeteer dave greenaway who i think i would mentioned uh, he had a very distinct british accent kind of talk like this very iconic I shall be like Charlene. I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I can't do perfect voices without the, uh, Charlene. We're trying to take over, you know, and it, it just it didn't really work. So Tim revoiced it. He's like, "Ha ha, Charlene!" And it was Charlene. Right. We have so they kidnapped the baby and Charlene, and anyway, it was really fun. And Tim and I have been good friends ever since. We after the first season, he and I and all this buddy because we're two bachelors who live in apartments. And, you know, you're just suddenly making all this cash. So we went to Australia for almost a month and just nice. kind of toured Australia. Yeah. So that was Dinosaurs. It was four years on that. And then I started writing. Uh, I'd been writing uh, Muppet sketch stuff. Right. And at the Henson Company, we were pitching um, movie ideas after uh, Christmas Carol had done so well. And I right. loved, for me, the Muppets were Monty Python. They weren't. Uh, Sesame Street. I mean, I love Sesame Street for little kids. And Jim was the same. Jim was just, the Muppet Show was a, pu a com public comedy troupe. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. 
It wasn't like, let's all learn valuable lessons about humanity. But the, the Muppet movie had come out. And uh, obviously at this point, I think four Muppet movies had come out right. before I started working with a company. Uh, I think uh, Manhattan had come out like the year before I started working with them. And I thought they were fun. I mean, the Muppet, they were all sweet and, and had a sweetness to them. Uh, Treasure, uh, Christmas Carol was kind of this new tactic. Like, let's use them as a performing troupe. Right. And I love that idea. I said, well, it opens up so many more opportunities. <laughs> so many more opportunities for, was it wine from Step Brothers? Uh, activities. So much more room for activities when they get the bunk beds. Um, uh, so I was very dead set on nine. And Christmas Carol is very sweet, but I thought it was a little too sweet and charming. Yeah. Not that it was bad, but it was like, all right, let's not make everything sweet and charming and all. Let's do something fun and crazy. So I was pitching either a King Arthur or a, a pirate movie. Right. Um, due to my love of Pirates of Caribbean and just pirates in general, because they're sort of crazy and, uh, you know, you can kind of push some boundaries, which I'm ever since I started writing for the Muppets, I was always trying to push to do something a little less cute and sweet. Um, because they are already cute and sweet. It's like right. saying, let's write, let's write my little pony Christmas movie and have about how they love each other. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a hat on a hat. That's, you know, adding sugar to the honey. Um, anyway, so, uh, pitched treasure Island and it was up against, uh, King Arthur. And right. I said the problem, and I like the King Arthur thing because knights could be hilarious dragons, you know, bring in all the, you know, wizards and witches and, right. uh, but, but as John problem, Borman taught us, without all the killing and blood, it's kind of boring. Well, and the fact that it involves uh, cheating on your best friend with his right. wife. <laughs> so I'm like, well, if we get rid of the whole Gwyneth, if they're already married and and Lancelot is uh, not trying to get in her drawers. Uh, so that was the problem with that. I mean, you could have done just a nice. <laughs> Kermit, thing. I can explain. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, said, I said I wanted him to be, Lancelot to be the human guest star. Right. And call him Lance Del Lago. <laughs> and have him be like, to kind of muppetize and have him be very Hollywood. You know, get a George Clooney or something yeah. like, hey, Lance Del Lago. Um, hilarious. Anyway, Treasure Island won out. And I went with Jerry Jewell. And we'd become, I'd been in all these meetings with him and hadn't written anything uh, for the Muppets at that point. Um, except maybe some gags or um, these little little bits. Yeah. So Jerry was my mentor, and we went off. I went up to Mendocino and lived up there for almost about six months, off and on. Got a, a little cabin, and he lived on the. It was it was horrible. I was on the coast, Mendocino, yeah. and would just go and write. You know, writer's hour. So I'd show up at ten, and we'd knock off at four if if we were in the mood. There were days where we're like, eh, I just got nothing, and we'd just go. Let's go eat lunch. All right, I'll see you tomorrow, and. Uh, so we wrote the first draft of Muppet uh, Treasure Island, and my pitch was it starts as the book, which it does in the movie, and then by the time you meet Long John and they're at sea for half the film, or at about halfway point, it turns into a, a road picture, a Hope and Crosby. I loved Hope and Ro Crosby. I mean, the, I was super, this is not going to surprise anyone, very, um, <laughs> very middle blue-collar tastes. And I mean, I love the Beach Blanket movies. These are classic to me. Yeah. Um, Dr. Goldfoot and his bikini machine, all the Hope and Crosby movies. Right. I just love that kind of corny. Like, we're not we're not gonna make you feel great yeah, about it. We're, we're just not, gonna make you laugh for an hour. We're not taking this seriously and we don't yes. expect you to eat. Yeah, and to me yeah. that's what the Muppets were. Yeah. And so uh you go there to laugh, not to learn valuable lessons about hum the human experience. Um and if you get a little bit of that, great. I mean, you know, the, the first movie had this moment where Gonzo's by himself, you know, uh, I hope to go back there to some one day. And there's Kermit's right. like his thing is like, you know, doc, I just, and those are great, but you can't do that every movie. Right. The same, you can't do the same story. Like, you know, I think we can all just get along. Yeah, we know that anyway. So <laughs> I, uh, Jerry and I wrote I the first, we can get along. Yeah. We wrote the first draft and it ended with a giant tiki stone statue chasing them down the Island and, the, nice. you know, getting to the boat and long John was, uh, I forget what we did. I mean, you know, he kind of was the same, but so we, Disney loved it. They're like, this is great. Well, we want to bring in a guy to rewrite the second act because it goes off the rails. So they brought in Jim Hart, James V. Hart. Right. was a lovely guy. And he had done Dracula for Coppola, Frankenstein for Branagh. And he had and his Hook. reputation. Like, and what's that? And Hook. And Hook. So he took classic book stories and was known as the guy. So he kind of came in and quote unquote fixed the middle of the book, which was basically just strengthening the long John Jim story. Right. 
The love story. Also, what's that? The love story. Exactly. It's not really awkward to me, uh, especially knowing about pirates and sailors and men at sea for long periods yeah. of time. Uh, particularly with Tim Curry, who's, you know, seems a bit uh, like he would. Piratey. Yeah, piratey. Um, and also the other thing they changed was we had Rizzo and Gonzo were Jim and Hawkins. I said, why does it always have to be a human child? Like, again, yeah. like, it just seems like it's a little cloying. So we had them as Jim and Hawkins. There was, and that was that was the... They were the heroes of it. Right. And they're like, no, no, we need a boy. We need a child because children won't like movies unless there's a kid in it. I'm like, I disagree. Are you kidding? I know. I know. Yeah. That's all the movies I loved as a kid. Hated. Yeah. I hated the ones where a kid was the lead. Absolutely. Character. Because yeah. you don't pretend to be the kid in the story. You right. pretend to be the adult. Yes. I mean, Goonies is the only film I watched. And I, I hate was Goonies. a kid at that point where I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> they acted like kids. They were noisy and messy and yelled at each other. They yeah. weren't. They weren't charming and delightful, and they talked over each other. I'm like, okay, that worked. But most movies where there's a kid as the hero, I'm like, oh, God, it seems... Even as a kid, you're like, you're pandering. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, we got a great uh, kid actor, uh, Kevin Bishop. We're still friends. I just had drinks with him like two months ago. He's in L.A. And uh, he was amazing. And Tim Curry, obviously, just delightful. Of course. Totally got it. Billy Connolly and was was my pitch. I said, let's have Billy Connolly play Billy Bones. Yeah. And he and I became friendly and I worked. Of course, you know, project. right before this, I, I've mentioned it to you before, but I interviewed for that movie with I Brian know. and, uh, and be storyboards. to do storyboards. And I, yeah. I showed him uh, uh, my stuff that I'd done uh, so far. And I, I wasn't ready, but it was a nice meeting and he was uh, encouraging. And, uh, and uh, yeah. then I went on to work on uh, Adam's family. So. Right, which oh, there. I mean, look, they're both good films. The thing, the thing that was nice about the Muppets back when they were owned by Jim and the family was well, because I I never was a writer with Jim. I was a writer, and I I will say writers were not as well respected as performers. It, the, the way the Henson Company works, and and the way even or not the Muppets, and even uh, the Muppets now at Disney, like the performers have all the power. Right, because they are. I said, I've always said, they're like Monty Python. It's not like John Cleese goes and plays these characters. Yeah. He writes them and plays. No, them they're stuff. the front lines. Yeah, yeah. So as a writer, you're kind of like my, uh, Jim Lewis and I, who wrote a bunch of stuff for the Muppets over the years. The joke was, we were we should change our titles to Suggestors. Right. <laughs> hey, wouldn't it be fun if? Nah, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and part of it comes from just having incredibly strong performers like Jim and Frank. As as a writer, you would give stuff to Frank, and you go, "Nope, just start redlining it. Nope, not going to say that. Nope, nope." Yeah. But you're you're cutting the jokes. Yeah, but it won't work. And and then he would do something funnier. So you're like, "All right, that's great." The problem is some of the <laughs> some of that has trickled down to like, "Well, that's how it is." The performers right tell you what they're going to do, and whether or not the performers are now qualified. Yeah, and and look, they have to approach it. The reason the Muppets are so loved. It's because they approach it like an actor and they embody the character. They're yeah. not, in in a way, they're not improv. They're not an improv group like or a comedy group the way Python was. Right. Whereas like their thing is like, I don't want to sell the character down. They're actors. They're actors. And they don't want to sell the character down the road for a gag. Whereas yeah. Monty Python is like, well, I'm John Cleese. Yeah, I they don't, yeah. They don't or I can be the smartest guy in the room. So as a writer, it's frustrating because you'd be like, oh, this would be really funny. And they'd be like, yeah, but I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, I'm the writer and this is TV. And they're like, yeah, but I'm yeah. Kermit. So, yeah. uh, so <laughs> it's kind of, uh, and then directing is so technical for them. I mean, people are like, oh, I love them up. It's, it's just getting five characters talking, you know, where you're not, you know, where you can just see them or even walking and talking. Um, and they can only shoot for about a minute, minute and a half before their arms get tired. So, you know, I was watching a clip from Poltergeist. We were friends and I were looking at it going, what an amazing shot. It's a trombone shot where it starts tight, widens out, and then goes back in. And it's about three minutes long with about five characters talking. Right. And the camera never cuts. And it's amazing. And I said, well, kudos to the focus puller because it's yeah. not one focal length. It's pulling back and going to someone right up in lens. And then they step aside and they go to someone in yeah. mid-ground. And then it dollies in and goes, so a tour de force and camera work, but also blocking like Spielberg knowing uh, or Toby Hooper, yes. probably Spielberg, uh, knowing how to you know get a crew that can do that. With the Muppets, uh, if they get too close to the lens, you can tell that, especially now in high def, you, they look like felt and ping pong balls with paint chips. I mean, it, what? yeah. Oh, 
so it, just directing is it's it's a thankless gig. I always say if the Muppets are successful, anything I do with them was good. Oh, that's because the Muppets are great. Anything was bad. Oh, the director didn't know what he was right. doing. And you know, let's, I've had hits. And, let's uh, let's uh, put a pin in this for now because we're out of, we're out of time for this episode. We're I want to continue this. No, uh, that's it. That's all I'm ever going to talk no, about. My... We have to continue it because it's, all right. So it's we'll stop fun. at Treasure Island. Yeah. Talking we'll, about we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with uh, we'll pick up with uh, you uh, moving on from Treasure Island and uh, taking all your doubloons with you. <laughs> so join us next time where we hear the rest of this. Sorry, it's gonna be. What are you? I sorry? don't really. No, I'm this shy. is great. You're not shy. You're great. No, you're you're great. You're uh, great. Cut. Does it have to be an hour? Can we talk for another ten more minutes? Nope. Come on now. Let's talk about your wardrobe. We'll see you next time on the Weirded Beardos. <laughs> Copyright the music. Oh my the way I'm doing it, no one will ever assume. <laughs> Have a heap and hell of a help and heap and help and love our stupidity. See you next time. <laughs>